The story I am about to tell you is true. It's about an abduction and murder that occurred in 1989 in Lake City, Florida. I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, and I'll speak with people familiar with the victim and certain aspects of the case. All the opinions you'll hear from people I interview, as well as my opinions, and what I feel may have occurred are just that. It's up to you to decide who and what you find credible. In the end, facts are what matter when determining guilt or innocence, and everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Price Creek Road is around five miles down County Road 245. So if a vehicle left the Suwanee Swifty store on State Road 100, where it crossed 245, it would only take a couple minutes to get there. The night that Darlene was abducted, two witnesses saw a light-colored Toyota or Datsun driving at a high rate of speed near their house on Price Creek Road between 1245 and 115. With tires squealing, the vehicle turned around near their mailbox and headed back towards State Road 100 in the direction of the store. One of the women said it looked like a man and a woman in the front seat and a man in the back seat. The other witness said she thought she heard a woman screaming along with the tire squealing when she saw the car lights turn around fast and the car accelerate, heading back to State Road 100. She thought the car sounded like it had standard transmission because she thought she could hear them shifting gears. And then they were gone. Five miles away, back at the Suwanee Swifty store, at 1.09 a.m., 14 minutes after the alarm sounded and a short five minutes after the customer called saying that he had found the store in a mess with no clerk, deputies responded to the scene. It was obvious to them that there had been a struggle, and for the next few hours, while prints were lifted, including a shoe print, and pictures were taken, other deputies and the captain rode around the area looking for any signs of the clerk. At 5 a.m., the investigators pulled reports from the computer involving the victim, Darlene Messer. They found two incident reports of note. One was a report made by Darlene just nine days earlier involving two white males acting suspiciously in her store parking lot. Both were arrested that night, and weapons were involved. The other report was a harassment report that Darlene had made regarding a vocational teacher at the Florida State Prison. These two reports gave the investigators their first two leads, and they worked on those while the captain headed up a ground and air search. At 9 a.m., Sergeant Wells called the father of one of the two males who had been arrested for suspicious activity just nine days earlier in Darlene's store parking lot. The father told him that both young men, Robert and Roger, or Rob and Charlie, as they were known to co-workers, had been with him at his home in Middleburg the night before. They were all up together and awake until about 12.30 when they went to bed, at least according to the father of one of the young men. So he was essentially giving them an alibi. Meanwhile, two other investigators were busy with Darlene's mother. That poor woman had been visiting from Canada, staying with her daughter, and you can only imagine the horror of your child being murdered while you're in town on vacation visiting. She didn't know the area, and suddenly the police were at the door first thing in the morning asking questions, like what was your daughter wearing when she left for work the night before? Blue jeans, 
a turquoise, short-sleeved polo shirt, and white tennis shoes. That's what Darlene Messer had been wearing when her mother last saw her. Sergeant Wells next interviewed Darlene's husband, Charles Messer, who was an inmate at the Florida State Prison. Charles Messer had been incarcerated since 1974 and had last seen his wife on the 17th, the day before she went missing, or more accurately, she went missing later that night sometime after midnight, just after going to see him that day. According to her husband, she'd mentioned to him that a man named George, a vocational instructor at the Florida State Prison, was harassing her to have sex with him. This was the man that was named in the harassment report that I mentioned earlier, the one that police had pulled up on their computer that morning. So Sergeant Wells interviewed George at Florida State Prison, and he denied even knowing Darlene. Further, he said that he was not in the area when the incident occurred. So if you're counting, which I know you guys are, that's two fairly flimsy alibis from persons of interest, all before one in the afternoon. Right around the time a woman named Linda came into the Criminal Investigations Division and said she was a friend of Darlene's. She said Darlene told her that she had been getting some troubling telephone calls from an unknown person. Fifteen minutes after talking to Linda, Investigator Roberts headed over to Darlene's house and retrieved a cassette tape from her answering machine. You don't know who this is, but I'll call you Sunday, about 11. So it was a busy day for law enforcement. The ground search continued. And then they got word that there were four subjects at another Suwannee Swifty store the night before, around 12.30, harassing people in the parking lot. They'd been yelling obscenities at customers, apparently, so that had to be checked out, too. And around this time is when they got that information from the woman who had seen the light-colored speeding compact car the night before, a Datsun or Toyota. They were told that a woman had been heard screaming. And then around 7 p.m. that evening, less than 24 hours into the investigation, they got a call from a man who lived at a mobile home park near the Suwannee Swifty store. He said that between 12.30 and 1.30 the night before, he saw two black males in a foreign car at the store. Now, I think it's important to point this out. Police did not get the lead about the dark rust or red-colored Grand Prix seen in the parking lot until sometime later. They did not have that information in the first days of this investigation. So the light-colored compact car, the Datsun or Toyota, speeding a few miles from the store on the night in question with someone possibly screaming inside it, was their best vehicle lead at the time. Let's assess what they did have at that time. They had a missing woman, a store clerk. They had an apparent struggle at the scene. They had a light-colored Toyota or Datsun about five miles from the store driving fast possibly with a woman screaming inside, and possibly with two other passengers during the same important time frame. We have a witness who saw two black males in a foreign car at the store during the same important time frame. In the area of possible motive, we have two individuals that Darlene had called the cops on at her store nine days earlier. That's Robert and Roger, a.k.a. Robin Charlie. Then we have a guy named George she filed another police report against for allegedly harassing her according to both she and her incarcerated husband. That is a fair amount of threads to pull, and police would get to pulling in the days to follow. But the next thing that would happen was that Darlene's body was found.
Around four or five in the evening, the same day that she had gone missing in the wee hours earlier, a guy named Billy said that he'd gone over Swift Creek and thought he'd seen a body, but he wasn't sure. I guess his curiosity niggled at him for a few days because it wasn't until the 20th, two days later, that anything was done about it. Looking back, it would have been extremely helpful if he had checked that day. And don't get me wrong, I'm not criticizing because how many of us have done the same thing? Or something similar, where our instincts are telling us something, but it takes us a little time to get dialed in, you know? I get it. But in this case, earlier identification may have made the difference in what they found. And I will get into that a bit later because it goes to her injuries, and there is a lot to unpack there. Anyway, Billy sees something odd. It bothers him. And he tells a guy named John about it, who is a train engineer. Billy is a train conductor, I should have mentioned that, and... That's how he saw the body in the first place, when he passed in the train. I suppose I should also mention that there's a train track that runs parallel to the Swift Creek Bridge, and on Wednesday the 20th, the train was passing that bridge again, but this time, John and his brakeman got out to investigate. Billy's gut was right. It was a body. And shortly thereafter, they flagged down a Florida Highway Patrol trooper. The second crime scene, the Swift Creek Bridge, was about four miles south of the Columbia County line and about 13 miles straight down State Road 100 from the Suwannee Swifty store, if one was to travel directly from one point to another. Because we have sightings of a vehicle down Price Creek Road, which would have been a few miles down the road crossing State Road 100 at the intersection where the store is located, if at some point we are able to connect that vehicle with the alleged woman allegedly screaming inside to our abduction and now murder, then we'll know that the perpetrator or perpetrators may not have gone straight down State Road 100 from the store, but could have shot out of the parking lot down County Road 245, then turned around for some reason known only to them, with their brakes squealing and headed back to State Road 100, taken a right, and then driven 13 miles to the Swift Creek Bridge, one straight shot, where they ended up dumping Darlene Messer killing her there or somewhere along the way. The report notes that there were multiple bloodstains on top of the east side of the bridge, and it appears that the victim was pushed from the side of the bridge into the water. She was found laying face down in the water with her hands and most of her arms under her body. I want you to remember that for later, with her hands and most of her arms under her body. I was able to obtain crime scene photographs, minus any images, including the body itself, and frankly, that's a blessing because I don't really want to look at those kind of images if I can help it. In this case, the damage to her body was severe. How that damage was inflicted would be recorded one way and later challenged by a forensic anthropologist. So we're going to stick a pin in that for a moment and focus on the secondary crime scene itself right now and what it tells us. The bridge itself isn't very long, 200 feet, three and one-half inches long, according to the report. It's just long enough to extend the road over a thin creek that passes beneath it, and it's plunked in the middle of nowhere, a simple two-lane state road that cuts through a wooded area. If you're interested in viewing it on Google Maps, I have put the coordinates on the Down and Away Facebook page. You can copy and paste those right into Google Maps, and it'll pull it right up. There is 2 feet 11 inches of what they are calling walkway 
to the right of each of the white lines on either side of the road on that bridge. Then an elevated cement section which makes up the base of the concrete railing. This is all concrete now. The blood stains were found near the middle of the bridge, 130 feet and two and a half inches from the north side. Looking at the images of the blood on the bridge, most of it is in what they're calling the walkway area, or what I'd call the side of the road just outside the white line, up against the base of the cement railing. To the naked eye, there appears to be three separate but connected large dried pools of blood. These dried pools are basically the same size and look to be close to the size of the bottom of the orange traffic cone base that they have sitting next to it. If you've ever seen a traffic cone up close, you know the size of that square part on the bottom. That should give you the general idea. So yeah, these are not small blood spots. I would call it a large section of dried blood pools that are all connected, as if they were all part of the same Venn diagram, or if there were multiple areas on a body laying on it that were actively bleeding, or an active area or areas on the body bled and the body was moving or being moved around that area, or someone was being beaten in that area. Above these three round areas of connected bloody pools is another area of blood up on the elevated portion of the bridge, which is the base of the concrete railing. These two spots are similarly sized, but they appear to have had less blood that drained and absorbed into the concrete. The first three I mentioned are much darker and appear to have been actual pools of blood that absorbed into the concrete and dried. Dark red on those versus the ones on the elevated portion, which have spots of cement showing through. There are also circular spots or drips of blood next to that, some smaller, some bigger, mostly round and look like blood that dripped directly down onto the concrete. A couple of things of note in this image, and I have posted that image on the Down and Away Facebook page so you can get an idea for yourself. First, there appears to be some long grass or weed pieces in the bloody area, and one piece of weed or grass that's separated from the bloody area appears to the naked eye to have blood on it. I say appears because I wouldn't be able to say with certainty due to the quality of the images, but given the grassy debris and that one separate bit of debris not in the blood spots that looks to have blood on it, I think that there's at least a chance that Darlene Messer's body came in contact with a grassy area and these were transferred with her or they were transferred on a shoe or something else. Now listen to me. Listen right now to the words coming out of my mouth. That is just a possibility, not fact. Supposition. I'm telling you what I see, and I am no expert. There are also two cigarette butts in the bloody area, one with the yellow filter and one white. They don't look as covered in blood as I would expect if a bleeding body landed on top of them. The white one in particular looks pretty white. So again... I think it's possible that these were deposited there after the bloody body was moved. And if that's the case, which is only a possibility, but if that's the case and both were put there after, that could indicate two perpetrators given that there are two different brands of cigarettes. Without being able to see them close up, it's also possible that one was already there, tossed out of a moving vehicle, and the other was put there by the perp after she was dumped. Or both were tossed out by motorists after the body went into the water and just happened to land on the only bloody area on the bridge.
or my eyes could be deceiving me, and they were both already there, and they do have blood on them, I just can't see it. I'll let you decide on that. You can go over and check out the image on my Down and Away Facebook page. I'll note that cigarettes were collected at the scene based on evidence collection lists that I got with the police report, but I'm not sure from which scene they were recovered. The reports don't say, as far as I can tell, and there's also an image from the store crime scene photos of an ashtray with cigarette butts in it. I would imagine it would be harder to know when those were put there, given the ashtray is right by the cash register and every customer has access to it. Also, there was another item of interest possibly in that ashtray. I believe a piece of cellophane with a red stripe, and we'll get into that later. If I were to guess, I think the butts found on top of that blood spot in the Swift Creek Bridge would be more likely to be the items of interest, but I can't say for certain. Now, getting back to the pictures of the Swift Creek Bridge, another image, one shot over the edge of the concrete railing, shows the water down below where she was found, and you can see the types of long grass and weeds there, as well as how shallow the creek is. And then there's an image of the roadway, and they said that approximately five to seven inches from the blood stain, they found a small puddle of what police said appeared to be some type of car fluid. They could not determine if it was power steering fluid or transmission fluid or oil, and obviously they would have no way of knowing when it was put there because the body was found two days after she was abducted. We can say for certain that the blood is related to the scene, but we can't say as much for the car fluid. But, if you use your common sense, if there's a small spot or puddle of car fluid, that would certainly indicate that a car had been stopped right there on the bridge long enough to deposit it, and one doesn't generally stop in the middle of the road on a bridge in an area like this. It would be very strange to do so and actually dangerous. And given its proximity to the blood, I know that, based on the reports, they do believe it had investigative significance. So, of course, the first thing I wanted to know, given the proximity of possible car leakage to the blood spot at 5 foot 7 inches, I wanted to know where cars leak from, like literally where under the car can leaks happen. So I dragged my barely willing husband into that conversation. Given his father was a mechanic and my husband has worked on every car that I've owned since we were married 20 plus years ago. Let's say you have a, uh, what you can see as a puddle that something leaked from a car. What I want to know, first of all, is how many fluids can leak from a car? There's oil, there's transmission fluid. Well, it's motor oil, transmission fluid, um, antifreeze, and power steering fluid, brake fluid. Oh my God, there's that many? So, do they all leak from the same place or they leak no, from different, different places? Spot. Okay, Depends. so I, that's what I need to know. Let's start. Where does the, where, let's say I'm going to look at your car. Let's, let's look at, just pretend it's your truck. Where does the motor oil leak from underneath? So if we're looking at the car, does it leak underneath the engine in the front or the back seats or where Where in the car does the oil Underneath. Leak? Underneath, but which the part? The motor. Okay, so it would be motor oil oh. in all cars leak from underneath well, the motor. Or leak from there or leak from the cap on top, from the seal. So, but would it, if at a crime scene I have a spot of some liquid that has leaked and I'm trying to figure out what that liquid is, okay, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to decide where that liquid is, and I also have a blood spot, let's say, so I'm trying to figure out where in the car. So would transmission fluid leak also from the engine down in the no, front of the car? No, behind the engine. So behind the engine, so let's say it's going to look could like it, it comes from... It could from be from the seal from the cab and underneath, or it could be the seal from the between the motor and the transmission. 
have so, a seal there that leaks too. Okay, so if that leaked, which one of those two, whichever ones? Watch, I measure would be like red fluid. Be red. A little red. And 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 it where from the car it would leak, like like underneath the cab. Like um behind the driver's seat. Behind the driver's seat. Or underneath the driver's seat. Okay, so transmission fluid would leak from underneath the driver's seat. Oil would leak from underneath well, the engine. Driver passenger between the middle. <clears throat> between the two. Okay, so that's going to be in the front center of the car then. Yes. All right, oil is going to leak from where? Front. Front. In engine. Front right engine. from directly down straight from the engine. Yep. Okay, what about power steering fluid? Where's that going to leak from? Right from the engine to you. Uh, depends where it's at on the left or right on the front by the radiator. Left or right? Oh, so it has to do with what brakes? What is power that? steering? Okay, but but you said depends on left or right. What does that mean? But with the power steering, they put it. Depend what kind of car it is. Oh, so some cars are it leaks. It would be, be on the left, left or right. Some, yeah. But still from the engine area. Be from the front of the engine area. Okay, so some cars. By the fan area. All right. So, but that would be in the engine area, left or right, depending on the type of car. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's oil, and then we got transmission fluid. What other what other kinds were there? You got transmission fluid, and then you got the radiator fluid. Okay, radiator fluid. Where's that gonna leak from? Right in the front. Right in the front. By, by the bumper. Oh, okay. So that's way up front mm -hmm. by the bumper. And what color is that? Are these all? One was red. Um, you said what was red? Transmission. A little bit of red on the transmission, but the fluid could be red or. It could be green. On transmission? What color? Oil is oil, so that's what, black looking? Yeah. Okay, what about radiator fluid? What color is that going to be? Well, it could be red, it could be green, or it could be water. And that's going to come right from the bumper, so that would be front right, of the car. Right from the bumper, or <clears throat> the water pump is broken, it'll be like that same area right in front of the motor, by the fan area. Alright, what other fluids do we miss? Brake fluid will be in the driver's side. Brake fluid is always going to be on the driver's side? Yeah, right in front of your windshield underneath. So, are you saying that every fluid is pretty much going to be the front of the car leaking? Mm -hmm. There's nothing that will leak towards the back? Well, the back, the only thing that could leak is the, yeah, the differential. There's, what's differential fluid? Well, that, that move the gears from the tires. So it's a liquid? It got a, it got a cap on the back side, it's like a ball. So there's a fluid. If it's a whole car, yeah. All right. So that one fluid, the differential. Any cars, yeah. <clears throat> but differential is not like a fluid that you change regularly, like oil no, or stuff, you right? No, rarely change that. You don't even touch that. So it's most likely not that one. It's a whole car. Yeah. So it's going to be most likely one of the front ones is, mm. is probably where it's going to be. Unless it's fun with drive. I mean, could leak in the front, too. Nothing comes from the center of the car. No. And the only thing from the back is that differential? Well, that come in the center, well, underneath the, the passenger driver's seat, the transmission. In the center, you said, the center yeah. between those two. So it's going to be middle up, nothing from the back except for that one differential thing, which yeah. is probably not the neat one. That's really neat. What I'm trying to do, the reason why I'm asking these questions is because I have a blood spot in a specific area on a bridge where a body was thrown over. The blood spot is right near the edge of the bridge. I want to judge where the car was on that bridge based on where the spot was. The two spots are close. So if I can see they're within five or six feet from, a, from each other, those spots, they basically just stopped the car. She was out of the car. Then there were a flurry of interviews also done on the 20th, the day that her body was found, with people who the investigators learned either knew Darlene 
or had relationships with her, a couple of whom worked at the Lake City Fire Department. There were also some witnesses who hung out at a local bar called Tom's Place, where Darlene frequented. It seems as though they were trying to learn who had left the mysterious messages on her answering machine. Among these was a man named Samuel, nicknamed Buddy, who admitted to having gone to Darlene's house and borrowed two VHS tapes with his lieutenant's permission while on duty at the fire department about a month before her abduction and murder. He said that he would be willing to take a polygraph and then, strangely, mentioned that Darlene had loaned the postman a pornographic videotape. He then admitted to having been tempted to have a relationship with her because she was showing a lot of nudity at the time he picked up the tapes. And he told police, quote, she had a loose reputation. A man named Frank, who was also with the fire department, was interviewed and said that he had met Darlene at a different Suwanee Swifty store than the one from which she had been abducted about five or six months prior to her abduction and murder. He said that he saw her every time he bought lotto tickets. And he saw her a few months earlier at Tom's Place Bar and they spoke. He left with her that night around 1.15 a.m. According to Frank, they watched TV and had a beer, and he left about an hour later at 2.30 a.m. After that, he said he didn't hear from her until about two or three weeks prior to her murder on the 9th, and they talked about her gas stove. He went to her apartment to look at it, and while he was there, Darlene told him about a black male who had been peeping into her windows. This man's name was Linwood, and he was listed along with George the man that she alleged had worked at the prison and who was harassing her, as one of the early suspects. Darlene told Frank that she'd been keeping a loaded pistol in her purse at all times and that she would use it. She mentioned that her mom was coming for a visit and that she hadn't seen her for about eight years. Frank told police that a man named Ken at the Lake City Police Department found out that he had been seeing her and told him to, quote, be careful because she had a loose reputation. A third fire department employee named Dwight was questioned and he said that he had met Darlene at Tom's Place, the bar, which must have been a popular place given how many witnesses had gone there. Dwight said that he once arranged a date with her, but that he had been unable to keep it. He told police that several members of the fire department were having relationships with Darlene and he believed the voice on the answering machine was one of the other fire department employees. Does it feel to you as though the guys in the fire department had gotten their talking points sorted out before being interviewed? Because it does to me, given that two of them, who'd been fraternizing with her, had both used the same exact words, loose reputation. They may have all felt she had a loose reputation, but that certainly didn't stop them, all of them, from hanging out with her. Some apparently even during work hours. I want to mention something because it bears mentioning. Men who tell other men to be careful of women because they have a loose reputation don't tend to tell women that about other men with similar reputations, do they? The negative connotation generally comes in when they're talking about women and not members of the same sex. That's asinine. Men sleep around, women sleep around, and although I don't have any specific evidence that that's what Darlene was doing, it sounds like she could have been. And if she was, it's no different than the men she was sleeping with because they were doing it themselves with her. Hell, there were quite a few fire department employees who apparently knew of her and her reputation 
one who apparently admitted to going to fetching a VHS tape from her house while on duty. What, pray tell, was he planning on doing with that video while on duty? Were the guys just hanging out at the firehouse and watching porn, waiting for the next three-alarm fire to pop off? I'm just pointing this out because it's really easy when she can't defend herself for the men who had relationships with her to sully her reputation when she's not around to give her side. So let me ask them for her. Dude, you just admitted to being at my apartment. If I'm loose, what the hell are you? Enough said on that topic. I think I've made my point. I hate that I have to do it as much as I hate that it's a valuable aspect of the investigation, but it is. It's part of her victimology. There's certainly a possibility that one of these men got upset at being rebuffed, and we've all seen what happens when certain types who can't take no for an answer get rebuffed. Now on to Linwood, the peeping Tom she had documented issues with. He lived in an apartment behind her at one point. In Linwood's version, Darlene had come to his house while his girlfriend was there and, quote, tried to start some trouble. It's possible the trouble in question was to tell him to stop peeping into her windows before she blew his face off with the gun that she was carrying in her purse. We know that because she had told multiple people that's what he was doing and suggested it's why she'd been carrying a gun in her purse in the first place. Linwood told police she had come on to him on several occasions and that when he didn't respond to her advances, she got mad and began accusing him of different things. Darlene filed several police reports and according to him, nothing ever came of them. But he did admit that a judge told them to stay away from each other. It likely amounted to a he said, she said with no evidence to suggest to the judge what was going on for sure, given the each other in that statement. Linwood told police that he had seen several Lake City police officers at her apartment on different occasions, and he felt the officers were having sex with the victim. I don't have any interviews with Lake City police officers, only fire department employees, so it's possible that he mistook their uniforms for law enforcement, or it's possible that there were Lake City police officers visiting her apartment on occasions and there just aren't any witness statements for them. I can't speak to that either way. Linwood was asked take a polygraph and he said he would but he never showed up the next time police spoke with him he basically told the same story but he added that Darlene wore her bikini around the apartment complex a lot when asked by the officer what Darlene accused him of he said burglary and harassment another polygraph appointment was made and this time he made it all the way to the state's attorney's office before he decided against taking it he said he was nervous Linwood's probation officer contacted the investigator around this time because she had received information that he was a suspect in Darlene's murder. She said that he had been good at keeping his appointments and showing up when told, but during the time period of the homicide, he didn't show up for appointments when scheduled, and she couldn't locate him. He failed to show up on the 5th, the 20th, two days after the murder, and the 27th, although that could have been because he had an outstanding traffic ticket that he had received in May, and he failed to pay so he was already in violation of his probation. She said that he had lived in the rear apartment behind the victim's apartment at the time she was murdered, but had since moved and did not have a vehicle or a job. So Linwood sounds like a peach, huh? That's a lot of red flags, but there are a lot of red flags going up about a lot of men in this case. All these men who may have had outstanding issues with Darlene and all this going on right around the time her body was found beneath the Swift Creek Bridge. 
We've got a handful of men that she had filed police reports against, and another handful who may have had intimate relationships with her. Here's something we know. Most murders are committed because of sex, money, or revenge, or a combination of the three in some variation. In Darlene's case, we've already got suspects that would easily fit into all of these categories, and we're just getting started. Stay tuned. Thank you.